Hey listeners, just a quick note before we get started. When recording this episode, we ran a little long and drank quite a few drams of scotch. We decided to divide this episode into two parts. Part one, we talk about Scottish and whiskey history and culture and give travel advice for Scotland. Part two, we do a whiskey tasting and provide more great insight into the process of making whiskey and the distillers who make them. These episodes are designed to give you a primer into scotch, whether you love scotch already or have never had it. We promise you'll find something interesting here. Slancha. Listeners, on this episode, we're departing from beer a bit and venturing into Scotland to talk about and taste scotch. This is for those who need a primer for scotch and any tips on visiting Scotland, either on a whiskey or golfing pilgrimage. Don't worry, we may still talk beer and the similarities between distilling and the brewing process. I'm your host, Billy Rudolph, and I play guitar backwards. And we have Craig Mykoski, head brewer and CEO at Round Trip Brewing Company. Yep, uh, and Scotland is actually one of my favorite countries because some crazy people there thought it would be a good idea to try to hit a little ball in cups really far away. It's a crazy game, and it makes zero sense. We're joined today by our friend uh, Dave Kuhn, who's a designer and scotch enthusiast, to take us on a journey of Scotland and whiskey. Dave's love of scotch extends to his extensive uh, whiskey collection, his pilgrimages to Isla and throughout Scotland, and his relationships with a few distilleries. Dave, welcome. Thanks for having me, Bill. Uh, anything else you'd like to tell the, the listeners out there about yourself? Uh, no, I'm a, I'm a creative director with a marketing agency, like Bill said, and I'm also into whiskey, scotch whiskey in particular. Um, I drink bourbon on occasion but it's kind of been an evolution in drink for me in that sense that i think bourbon's a little bit too sweet for my palate these days so i don't know i just like the the provenance and the stories and the history and you know i it turns out i have scottish ancestors so that's always cool to delve into and uh you know raise a glass so so for those who have not been to scotland and don't know much about scotch, or maybe they do, what can you give us as a kind of a good primer about either visiting or drinking? Big question. That is a big question. Um, well. Does everybody wear a kilt? Not everyone wears no. a kilt. I don't really, right. I think kilts there are sort of the tuxedo of Scotland these days. Okay, yeah, they wear them at weddings. I yeah, think I want to yeah. see pictures, right? Yeah, or like some sort of family gathering or the Highland game kind of thing. Um, you know, I've seen people wear kilts in that regard, but I, you know, when you just go into a shop in Edinburgh or somewhere, I don't think most people do. People have pants on. Pants? Yeah. Wow. They call them trousers. <laughs> pants would be underwear. So you're flying into where? Where do you usually fly into when you're flying going over? I guess you're you're mo mostly dealing with uh, the whiskey side is more of the western side is is what I'm guessing because when I when I was flying into Edinburgh I didn't notice as much whiskey culture I think around there. Well, I think they've only just opened two distilleries, functioning distilleries in Edinburgh in the last uh, year. From the what I've kept up with, I you know I don't read a 
a ton of blogs. I kind of keep up with a couple of websites, listen to some other podcasts that are specifically designed about whiskey. Um, but there is a, there's a huge whiskey culture in all of Scotland. Um, and there are over, I think close to 300 distilleries now all over the place. I mean, there are pockets of Scotland where there aren't any, but you know, there are certain regions where it's just completely dense and full of distilleries. So it's kind of inescapable. Um, I either fly into Glasgow or I fly into Edinburgh. Usually it's Glasgow if I'm making a trip to Isla. And I think that's probably a, a good tip. Number one is that if you're going to go to Isla, you can get a direct flight from Glasgow. But um, there's all sorts of logistical things to figure out when you're doing that, because a place like Isla or even somewhere like Talisker or Orkney, Talisker, sorry, uh, Sky or Orkney, um, are so remote that, you know, you're basically going to spend an entire day getting there. Yeah. That's one of the things that I wanted to talk about because uh, compared to if you're fl- like, if I'm flying to Edinburgh and if I'm going up to San Andreas for golf or whatever, it's uh, that side of the country. It's a lot more, e- it's a lot easier to navigate just because it's pretty flat. It's, yeah, it's, and you can run a car. It may be hilly, but it's not like what yeah. it seems like. On, and I have not traveled to the Western side, but um, with, with the locks and the big mountains and, and everything, it seems like the only way to get to most of these places, whether it's, you know, obviously if it's on an island, it's going to be by plane or by boat. Yeah. But if you're going somewhere that um, isn't on an island, I mean, you're still driving way around the country just because you're trying to get around a mountain or something. It's not like they have tunnels because there's not a lot of people that are traveling out there probably. Right. I mean, it's, you know, you're either driving to a ferry or you're just flying. Uh, I have a buddy that I actually met at a scotch tasting once. And that's probably something else we should talk about is scotch tastings. I mean, I'm sure it's just like brewery visits too, but um, I met this guy who I've kept in touch with over the years. I've been in for about six years now. And, um, you know, he lives in Edinburgh and we were planning to go out there before everything got put on hold. Um, but, you know, his, his whole plan was to drive from Edinburgh all the way to the ferry, basically at Campbellton, then take the ferry from Kintyre, I think is the name of the city. You can take a ferry from there to Isla and it takes about two hours. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a little bit of a haul. I've actually made the drive from Edinburgh to St. Andrews myself, um, and from St. Edinburgh up to Dufftown, which is like the hardest Bayside where there's all these different mm-hmm. distilleries too. So it's a little bit, it's a little more of a scenic way to do it um, instead of being in the air, obviously. But, you know, um, as long as you get used to driving on the other side of the road, then it seems to go well. Still pretty rewarding. And are there, I assume there might be some buses you could take to as another transportation. I would think so. Cause yeah, I, mean, I haven't really looked into that aspect of it, but I mean, definitely trains, you know, that's the one advantage. I think that this network of trains in Europe and in the UK and stuff like that has over the U S in terms of just making it more accessible to get around. Um, and relatively affordable. I think, you know, I've always wanted to, I've always had these grand dreams of taking train trips in the U S but it's like basically yeah. twice as expensive as taking a flight and takes three times as long. Right. So. I, I remember, uh, when I took the trains and the buses when I was over in Scotland and, and everything was perfectly on time and clean and, uh, and not expensive at all. Uh, I guess my, my wonder with that would be, you know, how uh, some, some of these places got to be remote, not exactly on, you know, the, the central stop of the city or something. So I, I would assume a lot of these places you'd have to have a car just to be able to get to. Yeah. And just, you know, the 
the the hop, skip, and jump, and then some, and then some. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like to get to Sky. You know, you can. I think they actually created a bridge to Sky now. If I'm if I'm not being inaccurate, um, I think there is a land bridge that they've erected to get there. But you know, there's aisles as they call them, at like Harris or. Um, there's just so many. I don't know. There's a really great program uh, on Amazon Prime if you want to like get into uh, all the different Scottish islands. It's called Grand Tour of the Scottish Islands. It's fascinating. It's really fun. It's, all the episodes are like 20 minutes long. Um, but there's just so many uh, islands that just, I mean, some of them are just so remote. Some of them have 70 people living on them. Some of them have 30 people living on them. There's an island called Jura, which is right next to Isla. Um, there's a distillery there called Jura. Um, 70 people live there. It's where wow. Truman, Truman Capote, <laughs> Truman Capote li- lived there when he wrote In Cold Blood. Um, so that's kind of probably the most famous resident. That's, a, that's amazing that only 70 people, because I'm looking at, I've, I've Google Maps up right now and just checking everything out. And I mean, it's not like a small landmass. There's only yeah. 70 people there. That's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And, and I know, I mean, I know there's, there's distilleries there. I mean, you would think, I would guess most of the people will be working at the distillery. I, I don't know. Yeah. Or I, farming, I guess, in that aspect. Yeah, uh, there's yeah. some barley field kind of things happening. Um, and there's just a lot of nature. I mean, there's basically one big city there. Um, I can't think of the 70 name. people, big city. See, so Craig House and Lab. Craig House, yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go, Craig. I love Destin. Craig House, um, I need to go. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's that's a huge economic driver, the distilling industry in Scotland. And, you know, it's made Scotland world famous, obviously. Um, but, you know, one of my favorite distilleries on Isla, Brookladdie, they're the biggest employer on the island. There's about... 3,000 people maybe that live on Isla as compared to Jura right next door. And they're roughly the same size, maybe. I mean, Isla might be a little bit bigger, but they employ, uh, I think, over 100 people now. And that's, you know, just it's it's a really cool way to give back. And they also use a lot of local farms for their grain um, to produce their product. And just there's a really cool Isla centric thing about that. And there's a couple other places that are like that there, too. But um you know, maybe they've just been the best at marketing it. One, one thing I found really interesting about people that are going out to Isla or, or wherever um, when they're visiting distilleries is, you know, when, when we go to breweries or, you know, if we're going to California wine station or whatever, a lot of times you can get really great prices when you go direct to the facility. But I was, uh, I was watching some documentaries on this and it seemed like there really wasn't a great price break if we went direct to the distillery and, and bought the distillery other, other than having a cool experience of going. And because it was taxed so heavily, um, if you go, uh, by the government. And there was a little bit of problem there that a lot of that money didn't actually stay on the island for for improving their roads or, or anything like that. It just kind of went back to the, the central British government. So I yeah. thought that was pretty interesting and didn't know what. No, I, I mean, I guess I didn't. Uh, I'm curious to, to know from somebody that's been there a lot, kind of what the facilities are like on the island. And if that is true, that there really isn't a lot of big improvements to the infrastructure based on they probably bring a lot of tax revenue in. Well, you would think um, it's interesting. Um, I've actually heard people who live on a place like Isla and I talk about Isla a lot just because I've been there the most, I think. But um, 
you know, they, they mentioned that if you really added up all of the tax revenue that those um, distilleries, which are in turn tourist destinations and really economic drivers for all of Scotland, if you added up the average amount of tax that the population of the island generates for the UK government, it's something like 200,000 pounds a year, I mean, wow. per person. And you would think that they would you know, really seek a benefit from that, from the government, but like, there's no hospital there. Like, you, I mean, there's, wow. a, there's medical facilities, but like, you can't have a baby. If you live there, you have to go to the mainland. Um, hmm. you know, the roads are kind of what they are. Um, and you know, I'm sure there's a certain aspect of the population that live there that don't care and want it just to stay the way it always has been. And that's, you know, that's fine with me. I'm, I'm, I'm all for tradition for tradition's sake, if it makes sense. And, you know, is a worthwhile positive contributor to the culture overall. Um, but yeah, there's, there's so much value added tax in Britain added to products that when you go to the distillery, um, you know, it is an experience unto itself. You're able to find things at the distillery that you'd never be able to find anywhere else. I mean, they have distillery only bottlings. They have, you know, things like they'll put a single cask in the distillery with a valinch in it or a valinch or however you say the word. Uh, it's basically the spigot where you can just stab it into the side and open it up and you fill your own bottle from a single cask. And once that cask is gone, it's gone, you know, cool. but you can't get that anywhere else. Um, as far as the facilities themselves, you know, unless it's a new facility like the McAllen in Speyside just built this, I think it cost. 150, maybe $200 million distillery. It's really cool. I mean, it's like designed into the ground. So it looks like it becomes part of the land. Apparently it's like really eco-friendly. Um, you know, I, I would imagine they have new stills, but a lot of these old distilleries that have been in the same place for 200 years, a lot of them have the same stills that they've been using the whole time. Uh, you know, Brooklady has a still, the oldest functioning still in all of Scotland that was built in like 1881, I think, or in the same decade as the year that the distillery opened, is still there functioning. Mm -hmm. Hey, the documentary that, I, that I'm referring to that I was uh, talking about the tax stuff was actually talked a lot about Brickladdy. Yeah, I, was, the, the Golden Dream. Yeah, Scotch okay, Golden yeah. Dream. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they, um, I, I guess the distillery actually shut down for a while, and, they, and he, the, the guy, came from. I say Bowmore. Bowmore, yeah. yeah Bowmore, yeah. sorry, yeah. I forgot. No, that's right. <laughs> um, Everyone says it differently. Yeah, but um, but it's yeah, it's yeah. I guess he kind of re reopened it and, and bought it for nothing, and then uh, yeah. Well, so he they hired him as the the head of production and the master distiller there. And there's a guy named Mark Rainier who was he basically owned like a wine shop or something in London and always wanted to own a distillery. And the story goes that. Um, a holding company had bought Brooklady as part of, you know, just some grand collection of properties. And this happens a lot. You know, they'll they'll mothball. That's what they call it when they close down a, a distillery. They mothball it and they don't necessarily halt production altogether, but they'll do, you know, instead of nowadays, they do two or three distillery runs a day in most distilleries that are continually working. Um they basically, I think, would do one run a week. And it's basically just to keep up blending. Uh, they, so up until recently, 93% of all Scotch whiskey was made to be blended into blends because that was the most popular expression of it. So when a distillery like that gets mothballed, they'll slow production down. And, and the story goes that Mark Rainier 
um, wrote the company that owned Brooklady a letter once a year for like 13 or 14 years asking them if he could buy the distillery. Well, so the story that I was told was basically progressively more and more and more. The letter he got back basically said, fuck off. We're not selling you this distillery. And so finally, on the last attempt, he had gotten together 50 million pounds from like, I mean, probably 100 investors, I would guess, um, in order to say, hey, we have this much money. And they finally said, fine, we'll sell you the distillery. And so they reopened the distillery in 2000 and uh, they hired Jim McEwen, the guy from Bemore. And so ever since it's been up and running, um, he's since retired pretty much, um, but it's still going today. And they, they really did a lot of, you know, gimmicky things early on. They would, you know, they had cask schemes as they call it in the UK, a scheme. I love that word there. Um, but it's basically, they would sell casks for, I mean, nowadays it would cost eight grand, 10 grand if they'd even sell you one, 10,000 pounds, not dollars. Um, but back then they were selling casks for like 800 pounds just cause I mean, you know, and the, the demand skyrocketed lately. Um, but back then they were just doing anything they could to make money and they had all this old stock. I mean, they had been there since the 1800s. So they had all these old casks sitting around and they, uh, you know, they figured out ways to blend the casks themselves and create new products. I mean, they had, you know, they had a bottle called yellow submarine, you know, and that would be like some special bottle they'd sell you back then. They actually, speaking of golf. Uh, they had a uh, a series of bottlings called links. And so it was different um, bottles that were made to commemorate some of the most important golf courses around the world. I think I've seen some of those bottles. Yeah, and I've actually got the Augusta National one. It's like mm -hmm. the 16th hole at Augusta. And they hired this um, golf artist, this guy who paints holes on golf courses, to like paint the painting that went on the tin, like the tube that the bottle comes in. And so I haven't opened that yet. I was going to wait and open it with my uncle that is a member of, an, of Augusta National. So anyway, they did all sorts of things to create revenue. Um, but yeah, and one last point about this, the facilities, um, they, they're pretty much the way that they have been run. It's just that nowadays there's a lot more computerization that goes on. You know, whereas before it would take 30 or 40 people to run a distillery. Now they can do it with as little as or as few as like three or four people. Most wow. people at places have like seven people that run the entire production. Yeah. Well, let's let's take a little step back before we go forward, because I know we're sure. gonna, we actually have some whiskeys on the table, which I'm super excited about. Um, but just overall, you know. No, I think most people in the U.S. probably are more geared toward the bourbon side. So uh, what differentiates single malt scotch? What, what is it at a 10,000 foot level? What is single malt scotch? Okay, well, scotch in and of itself is made with three ingredients. It's water, barley, and yeast. And that's it. That's what Scotch whiskey is made out of. Mm -hmm. Now, where, where bourbon would bring in the corn aspect, I guess. Yeah, corn's fifty-one percent corn, and it usually has a little bit of malted barley in it. Um, uh, now, well, let me take a step back. It's Scotch whiskey itself, um, single malt Scotch whiskey, is made with barley. They do make grain whiskey in Scotland, well, they'll, where they'll use you know oats or something like that. Um, now, when something is a single malt, that just means it's made by the same distillery. It doesn't mean the same, it doesn't mean a single production run. I, you know, there was this Rolling Stone article someone wrote like three weeks ago where the guy just got all of it wrong, trying to tell <laughs> people about whiskey. 
And, so, uh, so single malt just means it's only coming from one distillery. One distillery. So, yeah. so that's that's good info for me because well, me as a beer guy, I'm thinking single yeah. malt. That means they're only using one type of grain, it, like like one. Yeah. yeah. Well, so a lot of the times, you know, you hear these old timers talk about they love a certain malt. It's really the way that the distillery processes its own grain. And that's what it means by their malt. So it's like they get barley in, they treat it a certain way, and that produces their malt, which in turn they make, you know, the grist and all the stuff that they turn it into before they ferment. And then to take that a step further, when does like blending come in and all this? Well, so um, every single malt, unless it's a single cask, is blended to some aspect. Because if you think about it, a hogshead probably holds 50 gallons, a certain type of cask. So in order to make Balvini 12 year old or whatever it is you're gonna drink, unless it says it's a single cask, it's been blended from 40, 50 casks for a single production run. And so that's where the master blender comes in because if you have a house style whiskey, the challenge there is to take this cask and this cask and even a different type of cask, like a wine cask, and they'll blend those together to create what is hopefully a consistent product. And that that in and of itself is a bit of a controversial thing with some people because, you know, there are distilleries that add coloring to their whiskey just to keep the color consistent. It's called um, like distiller's caramel or something like yeah. that. Yeah, um, there, there's a beer one called Cinnamar that, yeah. that, that some breweries will, they'll like make a Pilsner and then they'll add some Cinnamar mm-hmm. and then they'll have a black Pilsner too. Right. And it's like... Yeah. Okay. You just had some color, but it's a beer. It's a beer. It's a grain derived coloring agent. Though. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it just comes down to personal taste. I mean, I don't think it actually enhances the flavor in any way, but you know, when you go and go into a store and you like a certain product, you expect it to be consistent. And that's just one more way to keep it shelf consistent. You know, if you look at it on the shelf, if one bottle looks different from the next and some people might shy away from it and think it's a little weird, but you know, the laws in the U S are not the same as everywhere else. And I know in like the EU, uh, in Germany in particular, I think is very strict about this, but they will, Germany's strict about everything. They will produce a list and say, (laughs) these, these expressions from these distilleries have coloring and these don't. So like, you know, like Balvenie single barrel, which we're going to try at some point, um, it does ha- it doesn't uh, it has no coloring in it you know and that's just how they do it and that's how you um, it's just a way of adding that sort of authenticity to the product itself what would you tell someone who wants to ship a bottle of whiskey what the best method is and then traveling with whiskey say on an airplane what are some tactics and some advice you would give if you're really serious about traveling with whiskey through the air my advice would be to buy a Pelican case. Yeah. Because I, I have something similar to that. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of different iterations, but everyone knows what Pelican case means. If you've ever seen one, um, that's really the only surefire way of being able to check a bag and not have it destroyed mm-hmm. is to have something that is specifically designed to take abuse and, you know, handling. And hopefully if you've packed it well enough, then, you know, it'll all be fine. I mean, I, the first time I went to the Isla Whiskey Festival, I bought a Pelican case and it was like James Bond whiskey travel because I bought one of those peel and pluck ones where you just pull out the little squares. And every time I bought a bottle, I'd peel out a little spot for it. And it had its own little, you know, home essentially 
Um, the other thing is, you know, you can, yeah, if you're just going to go and you're visiting and you're not like super enthusiast about it, if you're going to travel with a bottle or a tin of whiskey, like these, you know, these whiskey bottles come in a, a hard aluminum tin. But some of them are, um, are good looking that you kind of want to hang on to. They're yeah, you definitely cool. want to keep the tin. A really great tip is to pull the bottle out and, you know, I mean, not everyone wears tube socks these days, really. Uh, but put a sock around the entire bottle and then stick it back into the tin and then put that in the middle of all your clothes in your check bag. And that should be pretty good for like one or two bottles. You know, I've done that before. I know I've gone on a trip to, um, I've gone out to visit one of our friends in San Francisco and we went to the Russian river brewery and, you know, I bought a, I bought like four, three or four bottles of, uh, Pliny the elder back with me. And I, I came up with all these creative ways to put it in my check bag so they wouldn't break. Um, but you know, it's similar. You just have to, you just have to think about, the baggage handler doesn't know there's a precious bottle of whiskey in your bag and they don't care. So yeah. I, I have something that's, that's, that's yeah. similar to that, but it's called the, uh, the wine check. Yeah. And uh, it says wine check right on it. So hopefully the, 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 whoever's handling it knows what's in there. And then I also make sure that they put like a fragile sticker on there when I check it in, but it holds 12 bottles, um, has wheels. It's pretty, mm-hmm. pretty good deal. And I would say also another thing is to declare, what you're bringing back the the amount of um duty or whatever it is you're going to pay on it is far less than the penalty for not declaring it and getting getting caught because you could be fined like a hundred thousand dollars for every bottle if they really decided to crack down on you um yeah the penalty for not declaring it and they them wanting to like make an example of it is Mm. far less than the twenty dollars you might pay on bringing back like seven bottles that's another thing if you're going to go to Isla and bring whiskey from Isla to the mainland, they have basically a uh, seven liter limit on the amount of whiskey you can travel with. And I think it's got to be under 60% ABV in most cases. So that is essentially uh, one difference between the U.S. and the U.K. is a, a, a fifth, as you would call it here in the U.S., there is 70 uh, 70 centiliters or 700 milliliters, where here it's 750. So the, one of the benefits of living in the U.S. whiskey-wise is you get one extra dram out of your bottle. Um, one other tip I was going to mention, I think maybe this was asked earlier and I forgot, but um, or maybe not. But if I would say if anyone's going to travel to Scotland for the first time and they just want to go to a distillery, you know, they want to go to a certain region that's full of distilleries, I would say go to Speyside. Um, you know, it's, it's very close to Edinburgh. Um, and there's just all sorts of, you know, very well-known distilleries that you can tour. It's also a lot of good golf right there. There is. And one of the best tours I've ever been on is the Balvenie tour. And you have to book it in advance. The tour itself lasted about four hours, but you know, one of the most interesting things that happened, um, we showed up at the Balvenie and you, you go to this little lodge. It's kind of like, you know, you see that room at the end of the masters where it's mm-hmm. like the fireplace and all that. You go to a similar room like that and you're all sorts of sitting around. And this is another thing I love about distillery tours. Um, you know, and I'm getting rosier as we speak because we've had a few dreams, but um, you show up and we all, while we were on this distillery tour, we go to the warehouse. And so they take you up to the top floor of the warehouse. And of course, this all looks very organic and authentic. But then looking back on it, you can tell this is all very thought out. 
Um, but one of the things that was cool is you could go and fill your own little 200 uh, milliliter bottle from any of these three casks that they presented you. But while the guy was talking about it, he had everyone hold out their hand and poured whiskey from each of these casks into our hand. And you had to drink out of your hand in the warehouse at Balvenie, the Balvenie, excuse me. And um, I'm sitting there thinking like, I paid like money to go on this tour and like, this is the tasting. I was like, I was like, this is the tasting. And then later on it ended up, we went back to the same lodge and they put out like seven glasses like this and they poured out all these different things and like let you try all the stuff. But the great thing about these distillery tours is you go on one and everyone's a stranger at the beginning. And then by the end of it, everyone's had a couple drinks. They're oh, all, yeah, they're all they're in it together. At that point. I think, yeah, and that you just, you're all just like, hey, I'm from Atlanta, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so, like I said, I've got a friend in Edinburgh and his his uh, girlfriend that, you know, I still keep in touch with because of that. And I think it's just really cool. But, you know, I'd say go to Speyside if you're going to go to Scotland for the first time and check it out. Um, there's a town called Pit Lockery. It's really cool. It's um, apparently Queen Victoria loved it so much that um, it became a tourist destination because it's so beautiful. There's a there's a distillery called Edradour, which everyone says is like the most the most beautiful distillery location you can go to, and it's very small. Um, but that's there. It's right on a river with a cool bridge, and the town is just lovely. There's all sorts of like Queen Victoria themed places. It's beautiful. I mean, it's like one of the top like busing destinations. Like people go on these bus tours of Scotland. And, and like, that's just North Edinburgh. That's pretty close. Yeah, it's very too. close. Yeah. yeah, it's a great place. I mean, Scotland's the most beautiful place in the world that I've ever been. And I'm not, I haven't been to a million places, but, um, you know, it's just, it's really, it's fascinating because there's just so much different kinds of uh, terroir there. As they say, <laughs> yeah, it is interesting that everybody. Um, I, I guess everybody uses their their own malt. It's not like breweries where we just buy malt from whatever maltster. It's it, everybody kind of malts in house, and is what it sounds like. And that's something I didn't really realize. Well, some well, people maybe do. not everybody, but yeah, there's just there's really not that many places that malt their own barley these days. Um, the Balvini does, um, Lefroy does. Brooklady is actually building their own maltings on Isla. Once Brooklady does that, they will be completely uh, produced on Isla because that's the only thing that they ship off to the mainland. And uh, another thing to gush about Brooklady, but um, they were the first distillery, I think, possibly in the world. I know in all of Scotland that was a certified B Corp, which to my understanding, that basically means that they are you know, uh, certified as um, sustainable and doing certain things that impact the environment positively. And that's another thing that they were really concerned with. They were shipping barley off to the mainland and having it malted and then having it shipped back. And you mm. think about the amount yeah, of transit right. and like carbon, um, carbon waste that goes into that. So once they do that, they're going to be malting, distilling, bottling, and packaging, and all of that right there. And I think that's pretty cool. That's incredible. Yeah. Let's move on to the uh, the final segment here of our quick fire questions that we Excellent. have. So uh, Craig and I have a few questions for you. Um, thank, you thank you. You have the first three. I got the first ones, and then you can you can take over. Or whatever. I'm nervous. I'm nervous. Favorite Scottish band? Uh, Camera Obscura. 
Oh, that's a good one. That yeah. or Bell and Sebastian, right? Bell and Sebastian Scottish, yeah. right? It's, yeah. it's, a, it's probably a toss-up. The correct, the correct answer is clearly Rob Stewart, oh, but right? But churches, though, churches. Who, are they Scottish? The, they're Scottish. And, and, you know, they, distincted, they uh, distinguish themselves by putting the V in their name. Because if you go and search churches Scotland, like right. think of the amount of results. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> All right. How has Nick Offerman slash Ron Swanson influenced your Scotch drinking? Um... You know, it definitely highlights the fact that Lagavulin is a thing. Uh, I think beyond that, not much. You know, I, it's, it's reinforced, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely gave, given it some like cultural cachet. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like anything else. It's like I was super into like Dave Matthews band in high school and college. And that's making that's that's allowed me to expand my musical knowledge into jazz just because of the nature of the instrumentation and the impro improvisational nature of their music. Mm -hmm. And so I think from there, like my love of jazz music, which I'm way more into now has kind of grown. So that's probably another aspect of it. Just, you know, um, it's just kind of planted a seed. Yeah. I, I put it that way as succinctly as I could. Now we're going to build off your, uh, your design thinking. So okay. favorite bottle design and favorite label design for scotch. Bottle design. It's really hard to like distinguish between the two. I think sometimes. Um, Answer it how you want. I mean, if it's your favorite, just does you know design amongst the. Well, there are two that really come to mind. Well, um, I really love everything that Balvenie does with their labels. It's yeah, just a very yeah. classic looking. Uh, label. I also, I mean, I'll say. I, I go back to Brick Lottie too. Uh, I like that. I like they, that. They, they do a nice, nice. Nice. Well, Brick Lottie, you know, they, they, once they got bought, um, Remy Contra, they kind of shifted to this very modern look. And I love that too. I just think um, it's, it's, excuse me, I'm not talking to the microphone, but I, I think I'm turning around and looking at the bottle. Um, but yeah, it's very clean. It's very modern looking. And I love it. I do love it. But like, you know, when you think about Scotch whiskey, um, I don't know. There's just sort of this traditional vibe to it. Whereas like, you know, Brooke Lighty calls themselves pro progressive Hebridean distillers. And that's, what's great about them. And that, that kind of fits with their branding. Right. I love the Balvenie, uh, label design. I love Lagavulin label design because they kind of print things at least like on their standard release, like, like this, this, label it's just you know lagavulin and everything else printed on they print it in gray on cream so when you see this up on a shelf it just classy. it looks classy it does you know? yeah stay classy with kind of like a, a tinted green bottle behind it yeah well yeah. you know one thing you'll notice about all these diageo uh bottles like talus there well, this is lagavulin but like game of thrones is diageo same exact bottle um they use a lot of the same bottle shape. Now, Dalwini is owned by them, but they're not. Um, but yeah, so I would say it's kind of a toss up between uh, the Balvenie and Lagavulin. Uh, now, I will say in terms of like innovation, in terms of package design and stuff like that, I mentioned Compass Box very early on. Compass Box is just off the charts, beautiful and innovative. And everything they do is just thought out to the T. And, you know, you just got to give John Glazer, the head of Compass Box, a tip of the half of that. All right. So I want to make sure I get my terminology right. Um, so we poured everything on the table. This is neat, right? Neat, With nothing, yes. no water, ice, any of that. So why is it called neat? Do you know what the background or why it's called neat? You know, I don't think I've ever 
thought about that or been asked it. I would imagine just because it's simple. There's nothing added to it. It's neat. Tidy. It's pretty neat. So I'm guessing. Okay. Uh, now it's time to offend you. Okay. Uh, what scotch goes best with Coca-Cola? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would probably say whichever scotch I least favored. Um, I don't know if I've ever actually tried scotch with Coca-Cola. So something in a plastic bottle, I'm guessing? No, I mean, I, you know, I would say something that most resembles a bourbon. Uh, something sweeter. Something kind of sweeter. I mean, honestly, the Balvenie single barrel, but that would be sacrilegious. <laughs> that would be sacrilegious. That, that's actually um, a good question. What would be the absolute best pairing, even though it would make you cry? I'm trying to think of what Coca-Cola tastes like. So Coca-Cola is like caramel and sugar and some kind of burnt sugar notes and a little bit of lemon. There's a little bit of a lemony thing that goes into Coca-Cola. Um, never thought about it that hard to be honest there's a little bit of a lemon <laughs> note there um, I would just say something that has matured in a bourbon barrel primarily and has no cask finish no sherry influence Think about like some would, would you be willing to test this thesis <laughs> yeah sure whatever I mean here's the thing whoever however you want to drink your whiskey is up to you it's just whether or not you're going to get a dirty look right is you know at your discretion yeah it's getting a nice steak with yeah. ketchup I mean the people at Lockerville don't give a shit what you mix their whiskey with as long as you're buying it you know they made their money Honestly, they don't care. I mean, I've heard the people at Lagavulin talk about, like, we know people buy our festival bottles and put them in an auction. Once they buy them, we don't care what you do with it. I mean, and that's that's just the cut and dry business that's aspect the business, of it. That's the know? business mind yeah. aspect of it, yeah. yeah. But as the as the brewer or distiller, or, you know, whatever, there is, there's definitely a sense there's of... There's an intentionality about there, it. There, yeah, there's some stuff yeah. that I would, I would be mad if my customer did, but at the same time... It is business, so there's that aspect of it. But if you if you put my beer in a frozen giant schooner glass, then I'll I will take it away from you at the Got same it. time. Yeah. <laughs> Do I get to ask you rapid fire questions? No. No. Oh, this is why not, I'm flip the flip the format on its head. I can do. No. We can do one. Do you have one? If you get your own show, you well, can. No, you, you, I'll, 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 I'll wait till the end. I'll take one. I'll wait till the end. Okay, you wait till the end. <laughs> All right, not scotch. We talked a little bit about bourbon. Uh, what bourbon do you prefer or suggest to people that, you know, want to get a nice bottle? Uh, I would say I would if I'm going to buy one bourbon for my house, it is Russell's Reserve Single Barrel. Russell, I've not it's, had that or it's, heard of it. It's, it's like $59.99 usually. It's about six years old and they bottle it. It's not billed as cash strength, but they bottle it at like 110 proof. And honestly, I mean, I've had Pappy Van Winkle before. It's fine. It's kind of one of those bottles you buy and sit on the shelf and tell people that People like Pappy Van Winkle because they can't find Pappy Van Winkle. That's why people like it. I mean, it's good. It's good. It's consistent. It's a collector thing. Yeah. I mean, it's good. It's not But at the same time, and this is what you always told me, it's like, go ahead and get the Weller because that's the same, almost the same thing. And it's great. It's made by the same distillery. It's matured in the same warehouse. Here's, Here's what Pappy Van Winkle is. And I'm not a bourbon expert by any means, but a warehouse in the U.S. is called a Rick House. And so uh, Buffalo Trace, who makes Pappy Van Winkle, the best place for the barrel to be ultimately or optimally for the right word is the middle floor. 
So like the seventh floor of a 14 floor warehouse or 15 floor, that's where all the Pappy Van Winkle is matured. Weller is going to be a blend of something on the first floor and on the 15th floor of that warehouse. And that's, it's the same exact like mash bill. It's, it's just all the Pappy is matured at the right optimal like temperature and you know, environment its entire life. And that's where they get it from. It's amazing how yeah. much you can do with marketing. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, it's limited edition, you know, that's the thing. And it's older. I mean, it, it carries an age statement usually too. And that, like we said, that goes a long way. Um, so we have one, one last question and uh, I will allow you to ask me one. This is the, this is the first in the history of our podcast. I, oh, which I, is mean, short, I, think, I think all questions need to be submitted in writing and approved. Let me get my phone. Um, so we have not discussed this yet. We've talked a little bit about what, what industry you're in, but you designed the round trip logo. Um, so the question is, is this the best logo in the history of beer? I would say yes. I would absolutely agree with you. That's, and that's the right not answer. just the dram talking. <laughs> <laughs> it is a sick logo. We're, we're really happy with it. We went through several iterations back and forth and, and had a consensus of everybody. And it, it's uh, definitely a winner. You know, if I had describe it in one sentence, I'd say it's serious, but it's not serious. That's what I like to say. It's, it's, and this goes a little bit back to my freestyle walking.org days, which you may be able to find somewhere deep in the internet, but it's serious, but it's not serious. But at the same time, it's serious. I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> okay. One quiet. Bring, bring it, Dave. What do you got? Do I get one each or just you? Uh, you can do one if you have one for both of us. Sure. Okay. You've played your perfect round of golf. The best round of golf you've ever hoped to play in your entire life. And you can have one drink of anything in the world, the history of brewing, distilling, etc. What would that drink be? Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I am a beer guy. I do love beer. Um, and I don't know, I can't pin it down to an exact. It, it might depend on where I was playing or what was available, but it would be a really, really nice glass of red wine. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big wine. I, I like, actually, you know, I like whiskey. I, I like really anything that's really high quality that isn't. Uh, I, I don't like the pretentious side of wine. I like when you get deep in and really just look at what the liquid is as itself. Um, I like a lot of stuff. Uh, I, I had really cool opportunities to go to the Firestone Walker Festival and I had some good wine at Impasa Robles. And uh, some of that wine is uh, is awesome and not, not pretentious because pretension is more in the Napa area. But whether it's from there or, or French Red or something, uh, I'd probably go to whoever knew wine at that course and ask him for what the best bottle of red wine he had. Wow. Is that also my question? No, I would say okay. um, if you could, and I'm only just making these up on the fly because I didn't know I could do this. I would Sounds say, well thought out. If you could, what would your, because I know, Bill, I know you're a huge music snob like I am. Um, what would your ultimate, and I'm keeping this within the realm of, of your industry and podcast, your ultimate music and beverage pairing Oh, man, I used to do that, didn't I? Um, anything, even you know, any. Is any, this a live performance, or is this just like drinking a beverage while listening? I think to it's music? up to you. I think I think you you've died, you've gone to heaven. You have a drink in hand and a song on the radio. 
Wow. Um, that's heavy, Dave. That's real heavy. Cash strength question. How about we have... Well, we in our Belgian episode, I, I spoke about how I went to this um, this bar called Degar, and they had this Belgian triple. That's the beer that I'm drinking, and probably drinking or probably listening to I, Springsteen comes to mind. Hmm. I interesting. That's off brand for you. <laughs> well, yeah, for people who know me, I, I still love Springsteen a lot, but I just think that he can encompass so much. Uh, in so many different songs wow. that it seems like I, I could do that. Um, are you expecting a Wilco or a Jason Isbell or No, I was honestly saying You know what? To be fair, R.E.M. actually. That's what I'm there, saying. That, that's Same. what you're going for. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's really hard to beat. Okay, so we have a Creature Comforts in hand and I'm listening to R.E.M. and we'll put our... Oh, I mean, you know, Degar, <laughs> I think, is a... No, it's, it's great. It's a well-curated yeah. answer yeah. there. Well, R.E.M., I mean, you know, for an American rock band, especially, you know, one of humble origins out of Athens, um, they're one of the more internationally, like globally accepted. And when someone says they're going on an international tour as a band and they go to like three or four countries, R.E.M. is one of those that was so popular in so many different continents um, that, you know, they could really tout their international credentials. Yeah. Um, But you know, they, they still have pretty cool roots, you know, uh, in Athens and in Georgia and in other places still. Awesome. Great well, answers. I think we've discussed everything we can discuss without making this about three hours longer opening some more bottles. So why don't you break us down, there. break it down for us. Let's finish this thing out. I, I mean, Dave, thanks for joining. Um, I think we are significantly more inebriated than we were when we started, which we were all sober, assumingly. Uh, but thank you for joining us. That was uh, that was very helpful, and I hope that a lot of people got to learn a lot about Scotch as an introduction and get excited about going to Scotland. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me. I'm uh, I'm a super fan of the logo. Oh yeah, and uh, and the beer. I can't wait to try it. And you know, I hope it it just continues to be a, an upward ascent and a great success. And thank you very much. You know, this is really fun. Slancho. We'd like to thank our friend Dave Kuhn for joining us to talk scotch. Be sure to listen to part two when Dave guides us on a tasting tour of the different scotch whiskeys. Beer Flight is a production from Round Trip Brewing Company. Voiceover help from Chris Mykoski and artwork help from Scott Miller. In the islands of Northern Scotland is where you'll find Orkney, which is home to the world's shortest passenger flight. The flight operates between the islands of Westray and Papawestray, and in total, you're in the air for about a minute. When you land, they hand you a certificate for flying on the world's shortest flight. One resident petitioned for a while to have the onboard snack selection improved. The story that I was told was basically progressively more and more and more. The letter he got back basically said, fuck off. We'll see you next time on the Beer Flight Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for flying with us today. We know you have many options in air travel, and we were probably the cheapest.